Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpin' Radio. This week, we learned about Clarice Thomas's black nationalism, the shocking decline of groundwater in Chicagoland, and the struggles of the modern dairy farmer. All this, plus the new season of Size Matters, the Trump Diaries, and Are We Cool Yet? only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for October 18, 2019. John Daly chatted with Dr. Moira Zellner about the troubling decline of usable groundwater in Chicago's collar counties. Zellner, who runs the Urban Data Visualization Lab, discussed her attempts to show how development and poor planning have led to water shortages and why Lake Michigan gives us a false sense of security. Radio Free with John Daly airs every Tuesday, drive time. Well, we've got Maura Zellner. She's the associate professor. She's with the Department of Urban Planning and Policy. She is also an expert on data visualization. And we asked Maura to come and join us today, not because we wanted her to hear a, a funky jazz band, but because uh, she's done some work with Chicago water and Chicago waterways and Illinois water use in particular. And this is a subject that's, uh, I think, come kind of the forefront in recent months because Chicago is one of the rare places in the United States that has single-use water. In other words, we don't have water treatment facilities. Um, we have reversed, actually, the flow uh, of the river. And as, as many people know, it takes most of our waste and effluvia right down, and it's St. Louis's problem. But this is unusual. Most other places have water treatment, and they recycle water. Um, while the Great Lakes are obviously experiencing uh, unusual record highs, I thought it'd be good to get Moira in here to talk about the pros and cons of this because we've had a number of businesses come into Chicago, including Lagunitas Brewing and, and some others, based on the supposition that uh, water was, would be at a premium and water would be a premium commodity in the coming years as climate change comes. So Moira, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. First of all, to tell us a little bit about, you did a large project with data visualization about water in Illinois and water, I believe, in general in the Midwest and, and how it's consumed and where it's coming from and what's going on with a commodity many of us don't think about. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, so actually, I started my work uh, with groundwater um, and in the Midwest. Uh, so when I was working as a student at the University of Michigan and then when I moved uh, as a faculty here in, in Chicago, I worked first uh, on, on groundwater. And if you think that we don't think about water in general, uh, even coming from the lake, well, we, we think even less about it if it comes from the groundwater. Um, we really, I mean, it is truly invisible. Uh, to most of us. Uh, and it's also just difficult to gain a sense of the effects that we have when we pump it out and when we use it in, in different uh, places. Um, and even though we are right next to the lake here, and it's an incredible uh, source of water uh, for the region, there are still many legal limitations uh, that prevent communities, especially in the color counties and beyond, to tap into that resources in those resources. And am I, am I correct in thinking that a number of collar counties, and in fact, I believe some places on the south side, are actually using groundwater, well water, as we would use, my, my parents live in a farm in, in rural Connecticut, so they have a tapped well that I believe is 300 feet deep. They'll probably text me and tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> uh, that was your text, not mine. Uh, but, you know, this is something we really don't think about. We think about the fact that we're on water mains and we turn the spigot on, the water comes out and everything's great. 
But am I correct that other places, in fact, in Illinois and, and around Chicagoland are, are not as lucky? Uh, absolutely. So they do depend on, on groundwater as well. And in some places in the exurban areas of, of the Chicago region and that are increasingly urbanizing, there are you know private households that just rely on septic systems and water wells to extract water. They're not connected to a centralized infrastructure. And even in some municipalities, they do have centralized infrastructure, but it's still depending on, on wells. So it, Jamie and I have talked about uh, a few things connected to this. The first being the in the city of Chicago, we have 27 miles of, of lakefront, basically, mm-hmm. and then 150 miles of, of riverfront. And one of the things that, you know, one of the biggest assets we've talked about, you know, um, other places that on Lake Michigan that have, have unfortunately gone bankrupt. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, in, in Detroit's bankruptcy, the number one asset that they reclaimed was their water filtration plant. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the asset um, of Jardine and how it connects all of these other water systems, I imagine that it's as valuable, if not more, given a higher population set. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yes, definitely. Now, why... I, I guess I want to dig into some of this. For people that don't know, by the way, if, if, if you're listening to the radio show and you don't know what a septic system is, a septic system is a way that you filter out gray water and wastewater using your own land. I mean, exactly. That is, my parents have a septic system. It's basically a big tank with a field, a drain mm-hmm. field, and the water flows out and all the stuff that you flush down your toilet, hopefully nothing toxic. Right. But then the ground cleans it. Waste treatment plants work in this, you know, a similar way. It's usually an open batch with bacteria, and the sun mm-hmm. shines down on this, and this helps to purify water. The obvious question is: number one, why does Chicago not have wastewater treatment? And number two, how did wastewater treatment come into play in places? such as, you know, uh, the UP and Wisconsin and Milwaukee, where you would have thought they would have had an ample water supply and this never would have occurred to them. You know, we're not in an arid region, I guess is my point. Right. So um, unfortunately, waste uh, water treatment is not my area of work. Uh, I, I do have colleagues, wonderful colleagues at UIC who focus on, on that aspect and who would be, you know, better informed to uh, respond uh, to, that, to that question. Um, but, you know, definitely you need... Uh, uh, an ample source of water in order to be able to count with uh, an effective uh, wastewater treatment plant. You know, um, uh, otherwise you just don't have enough water to run it uh, to run it through. But ag- again, like the experts are my colleagues at UIC on 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 those I- issues. But with groundwater, obviously, this isn't something that would come up very often in Chicago because we have this giant lake next to us. Right. Do you think there is, just, just speaking again, not necessarily as a, an expert, but maybe as a informed observer, mm-hmm. let's say, yeah. w- would you think that uh, perhaps because we have this giant body of water, we've kind of been suckered into thinking that, oh, we've got a lot of water. There's there's no reason to worry about this. De- definitely, there is the perception aspect of it. Uh, and with perception goes valuation. So how much do we value the resource based on, you know, how scarce we believe it, e- it is? And here we don't believe it is, it is scarce because we are right next to this huge body of water. And, you know, so even some climate change proje- projections show that that's not going to be a problem. In fact, we might have too much water. Still, in that context, 
as we move away from the lake, that is still not the case because it's not just about how much water is sitting there. It's about how much is renewed, uh, how much do we take in relationship. So we've got to see this in relationship to other rates. So how much do we extract in relation to how much is renewed? Uh, the same goes for the groundwater, especially with these legal constraints. We can only take so much from the lake just by this legal compact that we have, which is an international agreement between the uh, U.S. states uh, bordering the, the Great Lakes and then the, the uh, Canadian provinces also bordering the, the lake. So as we move away from the lake, we don't have access legally to that body of, of water. And in that case, with groundwater, there's a complexity of, again, like not seeing it. There are, like, if we look at renewal rates, they are, they are different, and they're different in space because they're going through soil, rock, et cetera. So there are all these complexities to it uh, that don't make it a straightforward issue. But again, we still have the perception, but we have water. And so we behave in a way that reflects that perception. How concerned are you that some of these collar counties are are going to run dry in ten or fifteen years, based on the data and the information that you've you found out? Well, so I've been working on this for a while now, for uh, several years, almost uh, ten. And even back then, that was one of the things that I was trying to raise: as you know, maybe we should really look into this and be concerned about this. And I think that all the people who are studying this problem are concerned about this. Now, we don't want to create panic uh, because what we want is to create inspiration for, for change in, in a way that is constructive. Um, but, you know, uh, there, this is going to happen. This is the trend. Uh, and we have an opportunity here to do things a little bit differently from what we've done in the past. So instead of, again, let's build infrastructure, let's get the water from Chicago, uh, or let's, uh, you know, get the water from the river, really have and take the time, which paradoxically will save us time and money and pain down the line, to really look at all the benefits and costs of some of those decisions and all the ripple effects downstream, what happens if things change upstream, you know, and really seriously and thoughtfully look at that uh, to then make our decisions accordingly. Because, you know, maybe we don't want that, you know, so much growth to the point where we essentially lock ourselves out of, of water. Are there examples of areas that you've seen uh, usage outpace replenishment to the point where it's, there have, it's been an issue. There have been cases in other parts. Of course, it's more critical in, in more arid areas uh, than here. But, you know, there have been cases in the past where some city, I remember citing them in my dissertation, you know, uh, but uh, that they became ghost towns because they just ran out of water. Well, the Salton Sea is an example, right, mm -hmm. in California, mm -hmm. uh, where they sucked so much water out of what was essentially a, a lake bed that it, the salinity went up in the... Mm -hmm. Fish died and everybody died, and now you, only skateboarders go there in California. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. there are some kids in California. Jazz musicians too. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm disappointed our soundtrack has has ceased for the moment. By the way, I just want to say that was <laughs> very pleasing. Uh, we've been speaking with Maura Zellner. She's the associate professor uh, in the Department of Urban Planning and Policy. Uh, she's the director of the Urban Data Visualization Lab. One last question I'm going to ask you before we let you go: um, How optimistic are you that these problems can be solved? Oh, I am very optimistic. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. Um, I think that there's definitely ways out. Uh, 
Uh, I think that they do require a different kind of work that, than the work that, that we've been doing, and we meaning society in general and in our country. Uh, I think that there is a move uh, towards uh, better coordination and with the aid of appropriate visualization tools. That's something that I'm definitely committed to, and there are others who are uh, committed to similar kinds of, um, of endeavors. And so I think that there can be change, but we really need to invest in that area of work uh, so that we can do this effectively and as painlessly as possible. Chuck Mertz spoke to Corey Robin about a little explored subject, the black nationalism of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. The author reports that Thomas memorized the speeches of Malcolm X and believes white people are incurably racist. This racial pessimism provides new insight into one of the most famously taciturn justices. This is Hell with Chuck Mertz, airs every Sunday at noon. Our guest... Returning to This Is Hell, political science scholar Corey Robin is author of the new book, The Enigma of Clarence Thomas. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Corey. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad to be back. It's great to have you on the show, sir. You write that Clarence Thomas is the most extreme justice on the Supreme Court. He is also the most emblematic. How can you be both? How can you be both the most extreme and the most emblematic? And and does that reveal something to you about at least those on maybe on the right who are on the court? Well, we live in a very extreme moment. Um, you know, the power of the, the right has been consolidated, um, and we have a white nationalist uh, in, the, in the White House. Um, so the moment that we're in is extreme, and it's a moment that in many ways reflects a lot of the touchstones of Thomas's jurisprudence and worldview over the years. So I think, uh, you know, the epilogue of my book is called Clarence Thomas's America, and we are living in Clarence Thomas's America. Why do you think that we don't realize we're living in Clarence Thomas's America? What is the obstacle to that realization and recognition? Well, I think it begins with our view of Clarence Thomas. Um, And this is a view that is pervasive on the left and uh, oftentimes on the right as well, which is that people pay very little attention to Clarence Thomas. Uh, Most people think that Clarence Thomas is fairly uh, stupid. They think he doesn't do anything on the court. They don't think he has any real opinions, and insofar as he's written any opinions, they think they were mostly written either by Justice Scalia, uh, who's now been dead a couple of years, or uh, by his clerks. 
Um, this has, you know, been a kind of longstanding reputation that Thomas has had. Most people, the only thing they really do know about Thomas beyond those kind of mistaken stereotypes um, is that he sexually harassed Anita Hill um, and that he doesn't really speak very much uh, during oral, oral argument. Now, both of those latter two things, you know, are true, um, but they don't really tell you very much about the man. And I think um, if I'm going to push this a little further, the epigraph of the book is from Invisible Man, um, Ralph Ellison's novel, which is one of Thomas's two favorite novels. And it's the famous opening where he talks about being invisible and how white people um, don't see him and also uh, don't see the invisible man, but also presume that they know everything there is to know about the invisible man who's black. And, you know, I've read this novel a couple of times, and I've, you know, I've always, uh, you know, appreciated it and felt I understood it, but in the course of writing this book on Clarence Thomas, uh, I've begun to really feel the force of that novel, um, not because I agree in any sense with Clarence Thomas or sympathize with his views, but the profound lack of curiosity and the profound ignorance that so many people have uh, about Thomas and what he actually thinks. Um, has been stunning to me. Um, I've had people, you know, I've been immersed in his writing and in and, and his work for, you know, about six years now. Despite that, I have people tell me with great confidence what it is that Thomas's views are and don't even bother to even ask whether or not they're correct about this. So I think a big stumbling block here, first and foremost, is an inability uh, for people to even consider that this man actually has a worldview um, that has a certain amount of depth to it uh, and that can be found in his Supreme Court opinions, of which there are over 700. I mean, just one more thing quickly on this. Most people don't realize this. Thomas writes the most opinions on average of any Supreme Court justice in any given year. Um, so these things are out there. Uh, the people really um, have a block against even considering what it is this man has to say, despite the fact that he is right now uh, the most powerful black person in the United States. You were just saying that he has done the most writing of any of the Supreme Court justices, yet he is often chided, derided for not participating in oral arguments. You write that oral arguments are somewhat exaggerated in their importance when it comes to Supreme Court decisions. So why the focus on oral arguments by the media and not on the written uh, arguments? And does the media exaggerate the importance of oral arguments? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two reasons. I think one, um, you know, for court watchers, I think for people who are liberal and progressive, you know, there's a real fetish, to be honest with you, uh, about the role of reason uh, and about the ability to kind of marshal your arguments. Um, and where oftentimes, you know, politics is conceived of as in some ways like a law school seminar. I mean, that's what people, you know, many people on the left loved about Obama. He was a former law school professor uh, at the University of Chicago. It's one of the things people, you know, like about Elizabeth Warren. And so there's a fetish, as I say, uh, about that kind of argument as if the legal reasons and the argument one, one gives um, in, 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 in a back and forth are really the things that ultimately explain how you come out on any given decision. Now, a lot of the scholarship, as, as, I, as I say in the book, has shown that that's just not the case. That's not the way oral arguments work. They actually play very little role in the outcome of a decision. 
But we have this, as I say, this fetish in this country and also this, um, you know, kind of belief. I've noticed this now with the, with the more recent case on the LGBT, uh, LGBTQ uh, discrimination. You know, people are looking, what does a, a Supreme Court justice say in the oral argument that might be a clue as to how they're going to come out? You know, that's just not, that's not really how it works. So I think that's part of it is this a sort of fetish of, of, of a certain kind of argument and a belief that the, you know, the, the back and forth of argument will produce a result. Um, so that's one part. The other part, I think, frankly, is a certain kind of racism. Um, if you were interested in what Clarence Thomas had to say, it's very easy to find it out. Again, you've got his opinions. They're all there on the public record. They're quite long. You have to wade through a lot of stuff, but they're there. You could listen to speeches. Um, you know, he oftentimes gives speeches. There's transcripts on the web. Um, there's audio recordings. There's video. You can, you can find it all out. He has a memoir. Um, there's a vast public record. Um, so if that's what you wanted, you could do it. But I don't think that's what people are doing here. I think they're trying to make the suggestion that the reason he's silent is because he's too dumb to ask the question. Uh, at Passover Seder, you know, you have, we have a story of the four sons, and one of them is the simple son who doesn't know um, what questions to ask or even to ask a question. And I think that's, that's the real point that people are trying to recur to. There is this uh, belief that because he's so quiet, uh, you know, maybe he's sleeping through the oral arguments, which, by the way, uh, I should point out, there's another justice who this accusation was lodged against, um, that he was sleeping during oral arguments, and that was uh, Thurgood Marshall, who also happens to be the only other African-American justice uh, on the, in, in Supreme Court history. So I think both of those things, the sort of the fetish of a certain kind of legal reasoning and um, a kind of, you know, just basic racism uh, about this man and a belief that he's just, you know, too dumb to ask a question. What do you think is the fallout? What is the outcome of having such poor news coverage of how the Supreme Court makes their decisions? What do you think is the fallout to citizens and their understanding of how U.S. justice works? Um, I mean, I think we're seeing it today. Um, uh, There is uh, this kind of false elevation of the court. which, you know, Louis Hartz was a political scientist who wrote this brilliant book in 1950 called The Liberal Tradition in America. And he, taught, he observed this, the elevation of these nine men to be, at the time, who were men, to be Talmudic judges who could somehow resolve all our questions for us, nine wise men, now women. Uh, and I think that's one of the, the big fallouts is, is the, the, the false elevation of the court um, to be somehow or another this impartial, impersonal uh, decision body that's going to save us. Um, you know, this is just a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a false view of the court, which I think we're beginning to understand as we see five conservative justices consolidate their power and be able to start, um, you know, really ruling. And, and I'll add one other thing. I think that's a consequence. The, you know, for all the um, discussion about uh, uh, Donald Trump and the fear of Donald Trump, the thing, the single most important institution that is going to preserve the legacy of Donald Trump long after he's dead is going to be the Supreme Court. Um, Clarence Thomas is the oldest conservative justice, and he's only 71 years old. He's much younger than Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, and Stephen Breyer. Uh, He could be on the court for a very long time with the other four justices who are conservative justices who are younger than he is. They will be there to preserve the legacy of Donald Trump. So the irony here is this institution that we venerate in this country as the impartial, you know, face of the law above politics will be the very institution that preserved the legacy of Donald Trump uh, and the current Republican Party um, long after he 
uh, is gone. Size matters, size matters, with Kyle Seismankowski. Hey there, Trekker, I see you're working on the old soldering iron there. Shove it, Kyle. Oh, whoa, what's with the hostilities? It's a lovely fall day uh, in the court. I'm sorry, Kyle, it's these f***ing lumping computers. They keep breaking and it's driving me nuts. And it sounds like no, you need no, to... No, 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 last time we listened to you, our entire server got sent to Latvia. I'm still paying off subscriptions to Germala Sviete, whatever the hell that is. I think that's a bridal service, but no, I'm telling you, I got this guy... Hey, what's it's... going on, Jagoffs? Oh, great, Mutton Jeff. I will overlook that remark so that you may admire my fine new Rolex. Uh, 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 look at it, it's catching the light, it's sparkly. The heck did you get the money for that? Oh, I didn't buy it. Okay guys, this is great, but I still have to solder this mother f uh, board back in. I'm telling you, I have met this computer genius and he can solve the problem here. Are you talking about Cole? Oh, my iPhone has never been better. Yeah, it's Cole. I, 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 my little flipper here can make calls anywhere because of this guy. Hell, that's an old can of shoe polish, not a phone. Now come on. Ah shoot, that's me, hold on. Hello? I guess this is he. Why, yes, I would love to discuss reverse That's mortgage. That's a can of... Oh, yeah. Let's go. I'm Let's gonna regret this, going, aren't I? Almost certainly. So this is the home of the computer mancer. The flying fingers. The technological wizard of Tamara. Uh, this is the old Lena's. I heard it was infested with rats. Yeah, what's that got to do with computing? <laughs> Nothing, it's just... Who dares trespass into my arcane sanctuary? Uh, yeah, maybe so this is a bad idea. Speak your business, mortal, lest I rain brimstone and cyber bolts down upon thine head. Yeah, I mean, you should at least look at the problem. We came all this way. I mean, we, he's we got... We walked to... across the street, Kyle. Oh, I see now, once again, the townsfolk of Bridgeport crawl to my doorstep, entreating the great Computomancer for tech support. Well, if you think it's a poor decision, feel free to exit through the portal to your left. So distrustful, uh. Jamie. No, by all means, please leave me to my studies. I was embroiled in a friendly psychic duel before you so rudely oh, interrupted. Oh, Jesus. Okay, look, here's the laptop. What it's doing is... Silence! My mystical scrying will tell me all that is plaguing your device. Yeah, that's not good. Initium. Capenium. Perficiendus! What the... You desired it to run, yes? Now it runs quite well. Um, okay, I'll, <laughs> oh my I'll admit this is impressive, I but I, I just need this thing chairs. to play underwriting, not gallop around the room on hooves. Pah! You peasants have no grasp on humor, do you? Can you make no time for some simple wizard's comedy? Or are your provincial radio needs so important? Oh, I didn't mean any disrespect at all, trust me. No, I understand clearly your precious broadcast requires immediate attention. Very well, allow me to address your concerns properly. Ut versus un proteste et virtute remove! You know... Trucker, we need to work on your interpersonal skills. Are you high? The station robot is racing around the room on what appears to be spider legs. What the hell am I supposed to do now? How dare you speak to me with such insolence? insolence. You dare question my eldritch methods? 
This is a mere um, arcane difficulty, but you have impunged upon my methods one too many times. Begone, ye mortal. Return to thy oh, realm God, at once. The great wizard is angry. Leave now and take your laptop. Leave now and take your impudence with you. And go. Hey, watch your fingers. Passium tremendous vasty. Hey, hey, look sharp. Kyle, I swear to God, I'm absolutely going to oh, kill ship, you. This is the future shock. Would Doom chill everyone? Wait, is that, is that Logan? Oh, man, we haven't seen him since. Episode 34. The computer mancer summoned the spirit of the Bridgeport hyperweb. And that is I. Oh, well... What have you been doing all this time? Well, mainly avoiding Ed and trying to find more IDM DJs. Jamie really hates that stuff. And while we're on the subject, Jamie, you haven't been nearly evil enough. I'm sorry, boss. Your title is Evil Station Manager. I'm, I'm sorry, boss. Don't call me boss. I'm, I'm sorry, boss. Well, let's get this all sorted out. It seems the Lumpen laptop was contaminated with the demon from Portsbridge. Did you guys travel to the world of Level Eater without protection? Ah, uh, yeah, that was me. Of course it was. A simple little bit of reversing code, and the Lumpen laptop is good as new. For 2010, anyway. Ha ha ha. Hell yeah. Thanks, Logan. And now I must return to my crash somewhere above Phil's. What a hero. Is there anything he can't do? But what are we going to do with the uh, computer mancer? Oh, I've got an idea. That's $11.99. Thanks for shopping at Maria's. Hey, um, excuse me, Logan? What is it, my child? I pawned the tape recorder you gave me, like... I know. Um, but the thing is, the episodes keep getting recorded, like... Everything that Kyle and I say shows up on these shows, and I haven't even had, like, a microphone. The Bridgeport hyperweb knows all and sees all, my child. Go with Grace. Really, you should go with Grace. The copro is out of toilet paper again. Oh, no. This week on The Trump Diaries, Trump loses bigly in court not once but thrice. Outrage grows after Trump throws the courage to the wolves. The stonewall cracks as witnesses line up in Congress. Giuliani is now under investigation for work for the richly named Fraud Guarantee. Trump shows a macabre video at a campaign function, and we hit 1,000 days of Trump. These are The Trump Diaries. Day 995, October 11th. Two associates of Rudy Giuliani were arrested and charged with campaign finance violations spent lavishly as they dug for dirt on Joe Biden. Lev Parnas and his partner Igor Fruman carried out a political smear campaign now at the center of the impeachment inquiry. They were arrested at Dulles International Airport carrying one-way tickets to Frankfurt. The men spent hundreds of thousands of dollars, including some money at a notorious Kiev strip club. Parnas also dined with Trump and his son. All in all, it appears they spent $1.2.6 million on that campaign. Parnas and Fruman have also been accused of making secret arrangements to hide the fact that they were laundering foreign money into United States campaigns through a range of corporate identities using straw donors. They also lobbied a then-sitting member of Congress identified as Pete Sessions at the request of one or more Ukrainian officials. 
In a related story, federal prosecutors in Manhattan are now investigating whether Giuliani broke lobbying laws with his pressure campaign in Ukraine. Giuliani was paid $500,000 for the work he did for Parnas and Fremen. Parnas's company was named Fraud Guarantee. Trump and Giuliani also pressured then-Secretary of State Rex Tillerson to drop a criminal case against one of Giuliani's clients. An Iranian-Turkish gold trader named Reza Zarab, who has been linked directly to the Turkish government, is facing federal prosecution in New York on charges of evading U.S. sanctions against Iran's nuclear program. Tillerson refused to help and then told Chief of Staff John Kelly about the incident. Giuliani said, quote, suppose I did talk to Trump about it, so what? Giuliani's request was, in fact, a crime. Trump responded by saying he doesn't know if Giuliani was still his lawyer. Quote, I haven't spoken to him today. Meanwhile, Ukraine President Volodymyr Zelensky said Ukraine will happily investigate the conspiracy theory pushed by Trump that he was Ukrainians, not Russians, who interfered in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. He also encouraged U.S. and Ukrainian prosecutors to discuss investigating Joe Biden's son. There's no evidence that either of the Bidens committed any wrongdoing. Shepard Smith abruptly announced he is stepping down as the lead news anchor and leaving Fox News. Smith had been heavily criticized by Trump. Trump then claimed he withdrew the troops because Kurds didn't help us in the Second World War. They didn't help us with Normandy. With all that being said, we like the Kurds. As a point of fact, 8,000 Kurdish troops were involved in World War II fighting for the Allies in the African and Middle Eastern theater. Day 996, October 12th. Former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine Mary Yovanovitch defied a White House ban and told lawmakers that Trump personally pressured the State Department to have her ousted. Yovanovitch said she was abruptly recalled in May and was confused when Trump, quote, chose to remove an ambassador based, as best as I can tell, on unfounded and false claims by people with clearly questionable motives. Yovanovitch further detailed how Giuliani and a group of former Ukrainian officials saw her as a financial threat and mounted a whisper campaign against her. Yovanovitch alleged that Trump is attempting to hollow out the State Department and in a related story, the White House again accidentally sent Democrats a list of talking points related to Ivanovich's disposition. This is the second time in a month that Republicans have accidentally sent Ukraine-related talking points to Democrats. The acting Homeland Security Secretary Kevin McGillan resigned. McKeelan had publicly complained about the tone, the message, the public face, and the approach of Trump's immigration policy. He is the fourth person to lead that agency under Trump. Deutsche Bank claimed that it does not, in fact, have Trump's tax returns. The bank had been subpoenaed for those records, but a federal appeals court said the bank doesn't have them after reviewing an unredacted letter. And Rick Perry was subpoenaed by the House as part of the impeachment inquiry. The former energy secretary was also ordered to turn over key documents related to Trump's Ukraine dealings. Trump has claimed that Perry asked him to make the July 25th call to Zelensky that is at the center of the inquiry. Perry also reportedly pressured Ukraine to make changes to the advisory board of its state-owned oil and gas company, Naftogaz. Those changes would have benefited friends of Rudy Giuliani. Day 997, October 13th. The Pentagon said it would cooperate with the House's impeachment inquiry, opening a new front against an increasingly embattled Trump. Secretary of Defense Mark Esper disavowed a letter sent by White House lawyers that had pledged non-cooperation and said they would in fact answer questions about allegations Trump held up $400 million in aid to Ukraine in exchange for political favors. A video depicting a macabre scene of a fake Trump shooting, stabbing, and brutally assaulting members of the news media and his political opponents was shown on a loop at a conference for his supporters at his Miami resort. The video depicted a scene inside the Church of Fake News where Trump begins a graphic rampage. Many personers' faces were replaced with the logos of news media organizations. Trump also is shown shooting Black Lives Matter in the head and choking Hillary Clinton to death. 
Stephanie Grisham, the White House press secretary, claimed on Twitter that Trump had not seen the video, but based on everything he has heard, he strongly condemns it. However, Trump has tweeted out previous memes from the same creator, Logan Cook. Cook was also a guest at a White House social media summit earlier this year. Trump also told a rally on Friday there was, quote, an unholy alliance of corrupt Democratic politicians, deep state bureaucrats, and the fake news media. Ronan Farrow reported that American Media Incorporated and the National Enquirer shredded sensitive Trump-related documents held in a safe just before Trump was elected. Farrow reports that then-editor-in-chief Dylan Howard ordered a staff member to, quote, get everything out of the safe and we need to get a shredder down there. The order came after a reporter from the Wall Street Journal asked for comment on a story about how AMI had paid $150,000 to former Playboy model Karen McDougal. Farrell also says that bushels of shredded documents were removed from AMI headquarters. A VAP at the company told him, quote, We operate right on the edge of what is lawful. It's quite exciting. Trump claimed the U.S. has come to a very substantial Phase 1 deal with China. Phase 2 will start almost immediately after the first phase is signed in. No details were forthcoming, but Trump did announce new tariffs would not be phased in. Attorney General William Barr delivered a speech at Notre Dame Law that claimed America was under threat from militant secularists, whom Barr accused of conspiring to destroy the traditional moral order. Barr blamed them for rising mental illness, drug dependency, and violence. He concluded by blaming secularism, saying this is not decay, it is organized destruction. Barr's speech was widely criticized. The nation's chief law enforcement officer is supposed to abide by constitutional guarantees of freedom of religion. This also includes freedom from religion as well. Day 998, October 14th. Trump lost three big court cases back to back to back. First, a 2-1 ruling from the U.S. Court of Appeals upheld a lower court ruling that required Trump's longtime accountant, Mazars USA, to turn over eight years of Trump's tax returns. The judges ruled that the courts, quote, lacked the power to invalidate a duly authorized congressional subpoena merely because it might have been better if the full House had specifically authorized it. The case is the first major dispute between Trump and the House to have reached this level. It is one level before the Supreme Court. Second, a federal judge blocked Trump from enforcing the so-called public charge rule. That widely criticized rule would have allowed Trump to reject green card and visa applications from immigrants who might become a financial burden on taxpayers. This could have included anyone who signed up for programs such as Obamacare. U.S. District Court Judge George Daniels called it simply a new agency policy of exclusion in search of a justification and repugnant to the American dream. Finally, a federal judge ruled that Trump's national emergency declaration to fund construction of a border wall is unlawful. District Court Judge David Brionis in Texas said the declaration doesn't qualify as an emergency under the definition in the National Emergencies Act. Meanwhile, Trump's former top aide on Russia and Europe testified before Congress about how Rudy Giuliani and Gordon Sondland circumvented the National Security Council and White House protocols in order to pursue a shadow policy on Ukraine. Trump tried and failed to block Fiona Hill from speaking. Her testimony included the information that then-National Security Advisor John Bolton told her to notify the NSC's chief lawyer about the effort and named EU Ambassador Sundland, Rudy Giuliani, and acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney as key figures. Bolton told Hill to tell the White House, quote, I am not part of whatever drug deals Sundland and Mulvaney are cooking up. Giuliani's a hand grenade who's going to blow everybody up. Hill said that Giuliani ran a shadow foreign policy in Ukraine that circumvented career diplomats in order to personally benefit Trump. She said she confronted Ambassador Sundland, who was working with Giuliani, about their actions. Finally, Hill told Congress Sundland was a national security risk because he was so unprepared for his job. He extensively used a personal cell phone and repeatedly told foreign officials they were welcome to come to the White House whenever they liked. 
Congress also questioned a senior State Department official in charge of Ukraine policy about his knowledge of that scandal. George Kent was questioned behind closed doors despite being directed by the State Department not to appear. Trump continued to claim the whistleblower must be unmasked, tweeting Adam Schiff now doesn't seem to want the whistleblower to testify. No, must testify to explain why he got my Ukraine conversation so wrong, not even close. Did Schiff tell him to do that? We must determine the whistleblower's identity to determine why this was done to USA. Democrats' game was full when we caught Schiff fraudulently making up my Ukraine conversation when I released the exact conversation transcript and when Ukrainian president and the foreign minister said there was no pressure. Very normal talk, a total impeachment scam. As a point of fact, Trump did not release a conversation transcript, but even the redacted transcript showed evidence he had illegally pressured the president of Ukraine to give him dirt on a political rival. Meanwhile, four more whistleblowers who said to have had first-hand knowledge of that call and more information on alleged criminal activity by the Trumps, in plural, are speaking with Congress. Day 999, October 15th. The impeachment inquiry is continuing at a blinding pace, signaling Democrats have learned lessons from the glacial pace of the Mueller report. Democrats say they will have interviewed 11 key witnesses now by the end of this week. The people and agencies being called to Capitol Hill have now expanded to the White House Office of Management and Budget Acting Director Russ Vout, the Defense Department, and Associates of Giuliani. Democrats also say the interviews have been remarkably consistent. Abandoned by the U.S. Kurdish forces in northern Syria, formed a new alliance with the Syrian government. Forces loyal to Syria started entering the north of the country to aid Kurdish forces facing Turkey. The Turkish offensive and the U.S. withdrawal from the region have drawn international outcry. The SDF were the main allies of the West in the battle against ISIS in Syria. However, Trump sent thousands of U.S. troops to protect Saudi Arabia's oil fields. Defense Secretary Esper announced the deployment of 3,000 troops, two fighter squadrons, one air expeditionary wing, two Patriot missile batteries, and one TAD missile defense system to protect their oil. Giuliani said he will not comply with a congressional subpoena for documents, escalating his battle with House Democrats. Giuliani said his lawyer, John Sale, sent a letter to Congress saying his client wouldn't comply. However, in a bizarre twist, Sale said he is no longer representing Giuliani. Joe Biden's son, Hunter, stepped down from the board of a company in China. Hunter Biden, who has been baselessly accused of criminal activity by Trump, also forcefully pushed back on the accusations. Hunter Biden seemed exasperated by the question, saying at one point, quote, it's crazy. They feel they have license to say whatever they want. I do regret not taking into account that there would be a Rudy Giuliani and a president of the United States that would be listening to this ridiculous conspiracy idea, which has again been completely debunked by everyone. No one ever paid me $1.5 billion, and if they had, I would not be doing this interview right now. Day 1000, October 16th. Today is the thousandth day of Trump's reign. This is a reminder to keep thinking about Hillary Clinton's emails. Democrats debated last night, and it was new frontrunner Elizabeth Warren who took the brunt of the attacks. Joe Biden and Warren also clashed in one of the biggest moments of the debate. But in a sign of the change dynamic, all 12 Democratic candidates on stage decried Trump and called for his impeachment, while none directly attacked Biden. Biden started to argue that Trump's attacks against him revealed his fear of facing him in a general election. Trump is now investigating why a rough transcript of Trump's July 25th phone call with the Ukrainian president was placed into a secret server for secure storage. It is feared the review is an attempt to find a scapegoat. Giuliani privately urged Trump in 2017 to extradite a Turkish cleric living in exile in the United States. The cleric, who is a political opponent of Turkish president, has been a top priority of Turkish President Recep Erdogan. Giuliani urged Trump to eject Fethullah Gulen from the country. Gulen, of course, is a permanent U.S. resident who lives in Pennsylvania. 
Another associate of Giuliani is now in federal custody. David Carrera was named in an indictment with two other associates on charges they made illegal contributions to politicians and a PAC supporting Trump. Trump insulted the Kurdish allies of the American fighting forces in Syria, saying, quote, the Kurds know how to fight, and as I said, they're not angels. They're not angels. If you take a look, you have to go back and take a look. But they fought with us, and we paid a lot of money for them to fight with us. And that's okay. They did well when they fought with us. They didn't do so well when they didn't fight with us. Trump finished his incendiary comments with, Syria may have had some help from Russia, and that's fine. It's a lot of sand. They've got a lot of sand over there, so there's a lot of sand they can play with. I wish them all a lot of luck. 48% of voters now say Trump should be impeached and removed from office. 59% disapprove of the way Trump is responding to the inquiry. 54% now agree with the statement that Trump not only should be impeached, but imprisoned. These are the Trump Diaries. Nancy Clem spoke to Abby Turner of Lucky Penny Creamery in Kent, Ohio. Turner, an award-winning author and cheesemaker, discussed her craft and the lessons she has learned as a woman in agriculture. Spontaneous Vegetation with Nancy Clem airs every other Sunday at 5. What is so hard about um, making uh, a livable wage as a small uh, dairy farmer? I think I want to take it back just a, a, even just one step further, and okay. I want us to take a, think a little bit about um, the traditional agriculture uh, system versus a commodity system, right? Okay. So it's very challenging as a small food or farm producer to compete in an industrial system. So the, the obviously, we're, we're, we're going for the alternative to the, that system, which is the small family farm, right? So traditional family farms in this country... Um, are, you know, people talk about eating local, and local used to be the way that it, that it always was. You know, we didn't have avocados in January in the Midwest. And um, those are, you know, we're trying to, in some ways, to get back to that. And um, the, the comparatives, obviously, in the, the alternative versus the industrial system or the sustainable versus the industrial system, you know, we as, we as farmers or food producers are trying to, to protect the nutrition in our food, um, we want to try to protect the environment while we're doing so, um, such as, you know, maintaining the health of our soil, maintaining the health of our water, um, farming, you know, without toxic chemicals. Pastures. With considerations mm -hmm. for future generation, right? Mm -hmm. But where industrial agriculture doesn't do that. Um, we're also concerned with, you know, water usage and, and as, you know, in, in your expertise, you know, soil. We want to make sure that we're building soil fertility through methods such as, you know, crop rotation and, you know, cover crops and, um, you know, continuing to fortify with organic matter, and the industrial system doesn't care about that. So, so many of these extra inputs that we are putting in, as as you know, folks that are interested in an in alternative model, you know, they're they're often costly, labor intensive, and it's very hard for us to compete at scale. Mm -hmm. Well, I you have some statistics that ninety. Uh, 90% of dairy farms nationwide are family farms, but they're mostly um, multiple generation farms, but they're also in trouble. So how is, you know, something, somebody of your scale and then some of the larger dairies that are still family-based? Um, I mean, it's not just small dairies and then the industrial, it's, it's kind of 
everyone in between. Um, and if 90% of the dairy farmers are family-owned, and it, I would say, does that mean 3% is industrial? And So you know, I'd have to tease out, tease out some of those numbers. Yeah. But I, what I can say is that you know, the cheese in the United States is a huge industry. Right. And, um, you know, it's, it's like, I think, like 8% of a $120 billion specialty foods market. So, so people eat a lot of cheese. The yeah. average American eats 30 pounds of cheese a year. And More in Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You know, we, we love that. <laughs> um, but we, you know, it, it's a big market. And the the way that that small dairies you know small family farms that are trying to do a value added product by making cheese well, and we could be talking about any value added pro- product right now that could be coming from an urban farm it could be jams jellies hot sauces you know relishes mm-hmm. it could be mm-hmm. you know any 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 raw material that is transformed is a value added product well when you are selling those direct um, the consumer really really is, will, will pay a premium Right. for products that are produced in a manner that aligns with their values. And so, so in some ways, we have that. We have that, that advantage as small producers. And the big companies in the industrial system understands that. You know, think about all the words that they've co-opted from, um, you know, from, from uh, not necessarily gourmet, but, you know, small family farms where, you know, everything is all natural now. You know, right. even the big companies, right? It's, it's all natural and everything's probiotics and, you know, all these things, these benefits that we might have had solely, you know, they understand that that we might be, you know, eating a little bit of their market share and that there's people that that really do care about where their food comes from, um, whether that be, you know, the local producers or, you know, whether that be the, mu- the method of production. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, are those industrial folks really um, shutting down the dairy industry because... You know, every, everybody I know that went into dairy or has been in dairy is leaving it. And I'm talking about the Illinois-Wisconsin border. Um, yeah, it's it's really tough. Um, you know, in Ohio, during the time that I was writing the book, mm-hmm. we had a dairy farm shutting every other day. And oh. and this is not, you know, Ohio has is, is a very big dairy producer. Um, you know, we're home to, we were home to about 2,200 dairy farms. Uh, you know, and it's 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 a very challenging thing. You know, the commodity the commodity market continues to push prices down, and um, and it's 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 tough. You know, for these multi generation farms, often labor is a challenge too. And you know, the young the younger generation sees how hard their grandparents parents worked, and said, you know what, that's just not for me, because it is. It's twenty four seven. There's no mm-hmm. you know you can't just turn off a cow or a goat. But uh, you know, milk, keep, milk keeps coming, and you got to keep processing it. Bonzo Turks came in for a John Daly session and delivered a searing set of improvised music. Off their album, We Bought a Boat, this is Blow My Job. It was engineered and mastered by Ari Shellist in Studio A.
Um, our second story tonight. Our second story. Uh, n- new mayor, Chicago mayor, uh, Lori Whitefoot, has declared that they will be um, removing all fines, late fines, fees. I've heard about this. Um, hexes and soul bonds, amongst others, that have been placed for library books checked out from Chicago Public Libraries. It's it's just so relieving that I'm able to uh, hug my dog again following the of course the one of the most common fines being banned from touching your own pet um that was because I did not return an anthology of of Walt Whitman poems. Well, so you know, you there's that's an interesting way to look at it because um in a lot of ways there is a there's a wide swath of things that were put in place sure. to attempt to – It was standardized. It was. It was. By and large, you know, you go all across the city and every single neighborhood essentially had its own um, way with which they penalized, right. penalized the uh, – The tardy the tardy return. The tardy return of uh, books or media. Yeah. And I mean it's, it's mostly – it's mostly cultural. It's whatever that – that neighborhood's uh, leading magic was at the time, mm-hmm. um, but still, it's just it seems unfair that I could not return a book to you know the Lincoln Park Library and I would just you know have a slap on the wrist. Whereas I, if I didn't return a book to you know a library uh, on North Shore, um, I would I would have my entire family you know haunted for the rest of their living existence. Um. You know, you say that's unfair, but some would argue that that is the only way with which the ability of the libraries to maintain their collection was possible. Sure. Um, I would be one of those individuals, and I myself had always made it a point to return my books on time yes. because I recognized – and I'm not dismissing you. I'm not looking down I on you. I those books for a certain amount of time. That's all I'm saying. Well, in that case, you shouldn't have taken them out from a library that had the soul bond in place. The soul, um, the the there soul is <laughs> in this case. The, this yes. is that's the collateral. And when you repeated the incantation, when you agreed to have your soul put up as collateral or when, your spirit or whatever you want to call it. When I agree to giving a lock of my hair and a and a and a, a dribble of my saliva to the librarian. Yeah. 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 You gave up your right to essentially have um a unmolested soul. Are we doing yet? 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 The Lump and Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.